Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Good. All right, you guys, put your hands together for Chris Zyshek. I um, just have one of these to read. Okay, thank you. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. I didn't know all these people were here. Okay. Um, I think a lot of you know me personally, so maybe an introduction is not necessary. Uh, but if you don't, uh, my name is Chris, or Christopher Zyshek, and I used to do porn, and I wrote a book about it called Body to Job. Um, this is like a book that's broken up into short stories, so it's not told necessarily chronologically, but there are dates before each short story, so you should be able to figure it out, I believe, in you. So readings are typically pretty boring, so I feel like I'm just going to read one or two stories and then we can talk. How about that? Um, apologize if you've heard this before, but this story is called Nothing Profound, and it's, um, it's, it's the first story in the book. Okay. Uh, the date is 2005. I was 19 and living with my friend in a suburb just outside of Santa Cruz, California. We both attended community college and lived off our parents' money and savings since high school. Neither of us wanted jobs, but we applied for them anyway. We knew the financial umbilicus was about to be cut. After a month of unemployment, I attended a seminar on how to sell knives and Tupperware. Even I could tell it was a scam. Eventually, I succumbed to scanning Craigslist for one-time gigs, something to tide me over. Most of them required prior experience, but I stumbled across an opportunity for a novice like me. I made a phone call that led me to a loft overlooking Folsom Street in San Francisco. A man greeted me inside. He was tall and blonde like me, but older and larger in the gut. He told me that he was an advertising agent. Photography was just a hobby that he did at his spare time. The man asked about my background, how long I'd been a model. I gave him an answer that he couldn't disprove. I've done some stuff for life drawing classes. If he could tell that I was lying, he didn't show it or he didn't care. Removing my clothes in front of the man was easier than I thought. He took pictures of me near a window, standing first and then sitting in various positions. I tried to appear brooding and intense, but when he showed me the pictures, I just looked naked. The man told me that I was beautiful, a word no one else had used to describe my body. If he was lying, I didn't actually care. It was just the type of flattery I needed to be coaxed into jerking off in front of a complete stranger. He didn't ask me to come because it was supposed to be art, but I felt, I don't know, special or something. I was only paid $50, but it was $50 for someone to look at me. I spent the next month stealing condiments from fast food restaurants because I still couldn't afford to go shopping. But I also got used to the idea of being naked for money or for art. 
It was just the most, it was just that most of the artists I'd come across preferred the look of me with an erection. By the time I was offered my first porn gig, I almost didn't see the difference. I already had the erection. I just needed to stick it in something, or something needed to stick itself in me. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Should I, like, take a laxative the night before? No, no, don't do that, said the voice on the other line. That's about the worst thing you can do. You want to go to your local supermarket and pick up a pack of disposable enemas. Okay. There's a solution in there that acts like a laxative, but you want to dump it out, okay? Yeah, no problem. I made a mental note. Fill the enema up with lukewarm water and rinse yourself out three or four times the night before. You can do it again before your shoot. Three or four times and again before my shoot, I repeated. For your wardrobe, we're going to need you to bring a few casual outfits and some collared shirts. Most of the clothes I own are band shirts and jeans, I said with some embarrassment. Bring some options. Of course. You're going to be working with Yasmin Byrne. She's a porn star from L.A., really cute. You'll like her. Cool, I said, like it was no big deal. You have the rest of the info, right? I repeated the address and call time back to her and said goodbye. Then I did a Google search for Yasmin Byrne and called my roommate in to look at her pictures. He laughed and told me he couldn't believe I was going through with it. Monday morning, I drove to the studio in San Francisco. The outside of the structure looked unassuming and blended into the surrounding commercial environment. Inside, I took an elevator to the third floor and walked into a large room illuminated by computer, by computer monitors and the blinking lights of electronic equipment. The woman at the front desk greeted me with a smile and asked if my name was Daniel. I nodded, even though Daniel wasn't my real name. She told me to sit. Someone else offered me a drink. I signed several pieces of paper, including a photocopy of my IDs and the negative results of my STD test. Then I was escorted back towards the elevator, which shuttled me to the basement. We stumbled onto a set where the walls looked bled or rusted and the props spare. It was like something that would show up in the Eli Roth movie Hostel a few months later. A woman with an Australian accent introduced herself as Demina. She said that she was the director. A girl stood beside her and struggled to slip into a tight latex nurse outfit. I recognized the girl from the pictures on the internet. Her tits were out, which made her all the more familiar. She introduced herself as Yasmin and sounded just like I'd imagine a Southern California model would, bubbly, youthful, and high-pitched. You do this a lot, I asked her, even though I knew the answer. She said something that meant guess and then asked the same question back. This is um, my first time, I said. You always put me with the virgins, she said to Domina. The director's response was snarky, which made me feel even more out of place. It was like we were trading makeout stories in middle school and I had none to share. You have a piercing in your cock, yeah, asked Domina. I nodded. How do you feel about electricity? I've never tried it before. Domina <laughs> told me not to worry. I had a safe word if the pain was too much to handle. If I acted like it hurt, she wouldn't turn up the voltage too high. 
Still, the thought of electricity passing through the glands of my penis was worrisome. But I was a good sport and would try about anything once. The camera rolled and I walked into a medical office. Yasmin was there, cleaning the counters with a dirty rag and a fresh wad of saliva. My improvised line was, what the fuck are you doing? She assured me that it was standard procedure and moved on to the formal questioning. Do you have any insurance? I didn't. I was also out of cash and had never applied for a credit card. It upset Yasmin more than I might have expected. Apparently she was an opponent of healthcare reform. <laughs> to demonstrate her position, she tied me to a chair with rubber hosing and shoved her tits in my face. Good, good, said the director. We broke before the next sequence so that I could undress and Damina could attach an alligator clip to the, si clip to the side of my ampling. She missed at first and the metal teeth bit into my cock. When I'd finished complaining and the pain had subsided, she continued to secure the device so that it firmly gripped the ball on one end of my piercing and nothing else. The electric shock was terrible and I decided to never try it again. But we'd started filming the sequence and I didn't want to be a bother. I agreed to the smallest charge possible and did my best to bear it. Yasmin eased the pain by jerking me off until I came. Then we moved on to something else. There was some whipping and slapping involved. I was tied chest down to a metal table with wheels. I wore a ball gag in my mouth, but had the safe word, uh, uh, if anything got out of hand. <laughs> Yasmin fingered my ass to warm me up and told me that I was clean. It relaxed me to know that I wouldn't be shitting on camera, so I took her rubber cock with ease. She fucked me neither hard nor gently, but I squirmed and strained the muscles in my face. The more I looked like I was being raped, the less she had to try. Mid-stroke, I felt the dildo fall from my ass. There was a crashing sound. Domina started to laugh and all attention was diverted towards my co-star, who needed help pulling herself up off the floor. I was still tied to the table so I couldn't see what happened. I was told that she slipped in a puddle of lubricant and landed on her back. <laughs> Yasmin wasn't injured. The worst she had to worry about was ending up on Domina's private spoof collection. But it was okay. No one took themselves too seriously. We'd done nothing artistic, nothing profound, just porn. When the shoot was over, we went our separate ways. A week later, I was back in my hometown practicing for one of my band's last shows. I got a call asking if I'd spend a week in the Napa Valley for a shoot. One of Domina's guys bailed last minute and she needed a replacement. I was offered more money than I'd ever made in a month. The decision wasn't hard to make. When the coffee shop managers and bookstore owners called back about my applications, I politely told them to fuck off. If I was going to kiss someone's ass for a living, I preferred it not to be a figure of speech. <laughs> <clears throat> That's the end of that story. stepsister brother-in-law here. It's interesting, I've never uh, read this in front of my family. <laughs> Hi. Um, okay, I'm going to read one more. Uh, I'm just going to read one more, and then, oh, I don't know how much time we have. We'll, we'll see. It's really short. It's called Not the First Time, but Close. Um, 
He placed a photo album on the table in front of me. There were pictures of naked women inside. They lay beside pools and couches, perched themselves on top of cars and erections. The photos looked grainy, which I found odd. I'd never seen pornography shot on actual film. The man said that the pictures were displayed in chronological order to flip to the back to see his more mature work. I did as he said. There was a yellow tint smeared across all of the images. Each model sported a full patch of pubic hair. Maybe some had been trimmed. He said that they were all shot last year in 2004. He said that I had the perfect look and then asked how old I was. I said 19. He said most guys who replied to his ads were at least a decade older. It sounded like a compliment, but he still needed proof. He wanted to see my abs before he turned on the camera. Standing behind the lens, he asked me more questions, my best sexual experience, what I love about a woman's body, and how often I jerk off in any given week. I tried my best to lie for every answer. Do you want to watch gay or straight porn? I felt like a trick question, but I said straight without hesitation. He put a disc in his DVD player and left the camera rolling as I unbuttoned my pants. I'll fast forward to the good parts, he said. When he pressed play, some girl was getting fucked in two holes at once. All I could see were stiff pulls of meat sliding and stretching skin. It was enough to get my cock hard, but closing my eyes might have done the same. I spat in my palm and rubbed the saliva around my erection. When I looked bored, he told me to turn around and spread my ass. The casting guys need to see this stuff, he said. I was obedient. I even arched my back to make my ass look more inviting. Are you close? Yeah, sure. I'll pay you $100 extra to finish in my mouth. Proper girls used to make men buy them a ring before they put out. I'm sure they never thought of themselves as whores. I demanded nothing. The money was simply offered to me in exchange for dropping my spunk in something more grateful than a tissue. Of course, I let him swallow me, lick my ass, and finger the hole. I wondered if it was my calling in life to be slightly misled into exchanging my pleasure for someone else's. Um. I don't know. I don't even know what time it is. Is that enough? You guys want to hear more? Okay. I didn't plan for more, so... I've never heard the audience this quiet in all the years working here. Just yeah? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> um... I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read something that's like a little nicer. It was like later in my porn career. It's about. I don't think I'm gonna get through all of this, but it's just like, just so you know, this all, wasn't all just like boring and shitty. <laughs> uh, so this is about like one of my long-term relationships, and I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> Uh, it's not me. No, I know it's not you. That, that's what I mean. It's just... <laughs> it's called Young. Um, this is like 
from 2010 to 2012-ish. All right. I met Mila in a house foreclosed upon and left to skate punk squatters. One of the kids had rented out his temporary home to a porn director. The director paid Mila and me to fuck. Our sex felt better than normal and it didn't mimic a rehearsal. After, we stood on the porch and talked while she smoked a cigarette gifted to her by one of the skater boys. She asked for my phone number and said that we should go to a show or something. A year later, I waited on the couch of a Woodland Hills mansion. The front door opened and Mila walked inside. She found her way toward me and kissed me on the mouth. Then she jumped into my lap and kissed me longer. We were co-stars on the set of a triple X parody for the horror film Scream. Our sex scene was scheduled to be the last of the day. I broke my phone the night before, or the night after our last shoot, said Mila, as if to apologize for never calling or to suggest that we'd lost a part of our lives. Someone interrupted and asked us to film a dialogue scene. So I donned a mask and chased Mila around the kitchen while a cameraman followed. We were given breaks between our lines and during other performers' sex scenes. I ruined her makeup each time, my mouth and hands smeared across her face. Mila was 20 years old and lived in the San Fernando Valley in an apartment she shared with another porn star. Her bedroom was full of post-it notes marked with goals she'd written down and aspired to. On one wall, she'd hung a giant map of the world and shoved colored thumbtacks through the country she planned to visit. She invited me over on the premise that her agent had been pressuring her to do anal and that I was someone who might help her practice. But it was clear that we had something like a crush on each other and that we'd stay a while past what we offered in bed. Mila mentioned her love for EDM and said that she wanted to learn how to DJ. I'd recently started an electronic metal band and said that I'd purchased a mixer with some money I'd earned from camming. My mixer was the wrong kind for her, but neither of us knew it. We sat beside my equipment and played with the knobs and then discussed our taste in music and played more with each other. She invited me to a summer music festival held on a patch of lawn called the Los Angeles State Historic Park. I dropped acid for the first time since I was 16 and danced into the night and into a warehouse until the sun came up. Mila danced beside me. She wore a foul fur vest, purple wig, and neon makeup. I'd never been into the raver look, but on her I played like magic, probably because I felt a certain way, because I'd said I love you and meant it. I invited her to my band's first show in a downtown artist's backyard. The crowd was small and seemed ambivalent toward our performance. But Mila filmed the entire set and said supportive things when we were finished, like, you guys will make it one day, I'm sure. She told me of her plans for the future, to develop her brand in porn and then expand it to music and film, a career that would allow her to travel the world. I'd lost some motivation throughout my years as a performer. My hunger for a life outside of porn had waned. Mila's dreams were large and open and they helped to bring back mine. Together I thought we might become something unstoppable. Mila planned to spend a month in Europe and asked if I wanted to tag along. She offered to buy my plane ticket if I helped to film her directorial debut, a guerrilla porn film set in Ibiza. I'd been outside the United States once when I was five years old, so the opportunity felt precious, a twice-in-a-lifetime experience. It wasn't a hard decision to make. 
Mila left early so that she could work for a handful of European porn companies and earn some extra money for the trip. I traveled to Switzerland to meet up with our mutual friend Chloe, a French performer who lived in Lausanne. Chloe had spent several months crashing on Mila's couch while she worked the American porn circuit. We'd grown close in the time since. Mila and Chloe in particular, they'd planned their European vacation together. I was more along for the ride. We rendezvoused in Budapest. Mila and Chloe continued to work. I roamed the city in search of art museums and food. On the girls' days off, we visited bathhouses and historical landmarks. Sometimes Mila and I would sneak away to film ourselves having sex for her future website. Once the girls had fulfilled their professional obligations in Budapest, we packed up and flew to Ibiza, Europe's island party destination. Chloe, secured us a, Chloe had secured us a villa several blocks from the water. It belonged to the family of a boy who'd once been in love with her. We spent the first night at a club called Space and danced to live DJ performances by Richie Houghton and Carl Cox. Chloe had some past relationship to Richie, which allowed us backstage access and near free reign of the VIP area. A man in a glistening astronaut uniform descended from the ceiling, blasting fire and sparks from every limb. The night felt like a dream, even sober. I tussled with a Saudi prince who'd spent 30,000 euros on a table with bottle service and whose view I blocked with my erratic dance moves. The club lit out just before sunrise, enough time for us to find our way to the beach. Light crested the horizon as I stood beside Mila, our ankles submerged in the ocean. I wrapped my arms around her and stared at a point where the sky and water appeared as one. It felt like we were doing something similar. I slept the rest of the day while Mila and Chloe lay naked in the living room and consumed grapes and cocaine. They were joined by Chloe's friend, Phil Holliday, a performer who agreed to be in Mila's porn film in exchange for a room in the villa. We ate bread and cheese and lounged in recovery. Then a day or two later, we started our production. I filmed Mila and Chloe running their dialogue as they sipped wine on the veranda. I and I filmed their sex in front of giant windows with white lace curtains that overlooked the street. At night, I snuck a small camera into a club and captured the girls as they moved under gels and strobe lights. Chloe introduced us to her friend, a DJ who'd been billed to headline the night. She decided with Mila that it would be a great idea to suck his cock for the movie. The DJ didn't need much persuasion. They took the camera from my hands and disappeared into the bathroom. The DJ's tour manager sat on the rooftop with me and said in broken English, that is crazy that you, that you can let your girlfriend fuck with another man and be okay with it. We both do porn, so it's whatever. I smiled and said more out loud to convince myself. Mila returned and I could see near her mouth and on her cheeks where the makeup had been washed away by semen and saliva. She was laughing. The DJ seemed overwhelmed. I lied and said that I was tired and left the club to wander the streets on my own. There was a pier I'd passed several times on my way to a local market. I found a slab of concrete near the end of it and lay there until morning. The water moved loudly beneath me. I thought about how it might be to drown. It had been years since I'd been confronted by jealousy, at least from within my own head. I couldn't figure out what I wanted or how things should be different, just that I needed to hurt someone and that I could only picture myself. 
thought was childish and so typical of men, so I chided myself for my anger and set out to walking, and I felt sadness and worse for feeling anything at all. Mila was in bed when I returned to the villa. She said that she'd been worried and had tried waiting up for me. I told her that I'd been hungry and had gone out for a meal. She accepted my explanation, but with doubt on her face. We slept beside each other, a rift formed between our bodies on the bed. The space we needed carried on throughout the day. It was tangible, even. Chloe whispered to Mila as she looked in my direction. Then Chloe asked if I would join her at the beach while Mila took a nap. What's wrong, said Chloe, as we lounged on towels and sand. Sometimes I can tell myself a thing over and over, like how to feel one way or not. Sometimes it doesn't matter. My chest does the opposite, or my brain, I don't know. You're talking about what we did last night? I said something like, yes. I'm dating a boy back home, said Chloe. He doesn't like it, what I do for a living, but he tells me that he loves me. Sometimes I find it very sweet that he wants me to himself. Yeah, but I can't ask that of Mila. It wouldn't make any sense. Chloe agreed, and I felt somehow better. We swam for a while and headed back to the villa. The next day, we traveled via taxi to the northern part of the island. Everything I knew of Ibiza disappeared. The lavish clubs and crowded streets gave way to trees and rural houses. We stopped at a small cove surrounded by beach and sparsely populated by hippies and tourists. I felt stupid for brooding in the midst of a paradise, so I stopped or pretended well enough. The sky over the Mediterranean looked infinite and blue. I thought of my heart as a speck, small beneath it, a thing already full. Mila ran to the water and then back to me. She was there by my side when we left and when we ended up somewhere else. I think I'll stop there. Um, Maybe it is a good time to do a Q&A, because we're only here for an hour. Uh, no one has any questions. Zach has a question. Um, you started writing down your stories, like blogging them, right. before everyone in the universe started writing down everything they did all the time. Um, and the actual things you write down are always they can be absurd, and they can be scary, and they can be funny, and they can be sad, but they're always written very deadpan. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering, when you started writing them down, and now, do you have a specific thing of, like, why am I writing this down? Because it doesn't, like, mm -hmm. for all of us, we're like, part of the writing is guessing, where this, like, guessing why that sentence is there, and then it's like, oh, it's funny, because it's deadpan, but we've been fooled. Like we think, oh, we're going to get a little more detail, and then it's like, oh, that was funny. So but when you're writing, you have an idea of like, this is happening to me. Why am I writing this all down? Why am I recording it? Because you are. You know, like, it's very Yeah. Well, well, there's two things going on. I mean, I, like, when I was very young, I think I just felt, um, like, before even porn, I think it felt kind of romantic just to be a writer. So I had that, like, intention at some point. And like before I wrote about porn, I wrote a kind of silly book about vampires, which I made you read a long time ago. But, but it's out and like re-edited, and it's a little bit better. <laughs> um, but I think that like, you voiced this, I think, in one of your readings. That, you know, when you're doing 
adult industry stuff or sex work or probably like a number of other things that a lot of people don't have access to. Um, it feels in your head like you're going through something brand new, which may not be true, but I think at least generationally uh, in porn, like like Ori Small over there who wrote, uh, who used to be Ashley Blue and wrote a wonderful porn memoir, but it's like, it's kind of like a generation before mine. And I think, uh, and even your book, it's like a very small space and time and, and things in sex work change so frequently. Um, so as part of it just being like, oh, this is new. And then another part was like in the middle of that, probably getting into the politics of, of sex work and stuff. Though I dabble in that like briefly and then tried, I don't know. I think now when I write about stuff, it's somewhat of it's just like an aesthetic. I like the observational thing because I think you can come back and um, and find meaning in that. You know what I mean? Um, and oftentimes the way I write is I do put more of like my feelings about it and take it out because I feel like it's embarrassing to me to read. And I think people get the point without me saying like what I thought about it. Does that answer your question? Okay. If nobody else can write it. Yeah, sure. Do you feel like things that you're going through that might seem dull or, or enough, like a more grind are more interesting if you know you're going to write about it afterwards? Or does writing about it rend, like bring things to the surface of something that was emotionally flat? Mm. So, so, okay, so you know that I wrote a blog and some of those stories are actually in here, like re-edited, well that's the truth. Yeah. I mean that's how this book came to be. Um, but there was a brief period in which I was trying to do something like, like right, right after I had an experience, but that wasn't always true. And I think having a blog puts you in a, a kind of dumb position where you're like, you need content. I think it's kind of a the position people who are like journalists find themselves in now, which is why we have a lot of silly articles in the world. But during yeah during that period of time, um, I, I think I probably was more conscious of it. Not a lot of that is in here, but um, I think it's a lot easier a long time after something's happened to kind of piece together a narrative that you want. And that's that's more of what I do now. It's not like it's not as like real-time writing. But there's a few of those, and in those cases, I don't know. It's hard to say in retrospect, but yeah, I probably felt more self-conscious about going through in certain scenarios and like, I'm gonna write about this later. So I, I don't like that feeling, though. Yeah? Could you um, talk about the decision to publish, the, to publish these memoirs under your sex worker name and what I'm guessing is your legal name? Like, was that a publisher's decision or was that yours? Did it have to do with coming out or? Um, it's my decision. Um, I mean, I took, there's a couple of people who have done this before me. This would be only a genre. Zach's one of the, <laughs> with the AKA. Mm -hmm. uh, but part of that also is I left porn as a performer kind of overnight and, um, I didn't really know at the time when I was performing, but afterwards I felt like 
I guess my identity was very wrapped up in that. And um, I guess that was minorly devastating or whatever. But um, I wanted to be able to continue that, what I've been working on, uh, with a lot of which was writing uh, during that time. And I wanted to be able to continue that outside of my role as a porn performer. But I have to kind of realize that, you know, no one knows who Christopher Tsaishik is, but I want to, I don't know, I, I do want to be taken seriously as a writer. I, I know like everyone fucking says that, but um, <laughs> if I'm only Danny Wilde, I mean, that's going to be silly. It's, it's silly now, but it's certainly going to be silly five years from now um, that I use like the name, that my porn hub name, essentially, to, to write books. So, yeah. How do you feel reconcil reconciling who you were born, so basically your legal name, sure. to this name and this persona that you embodied? Um, well, I think getting like the initial years of doing porn, there was more of a conflict with that. Um, Certainly, just just on the surface, it's like when people call you a different name on set, um, that's weird. But then you get used to that. And, and late, to kind of address that now, I think one of the things porn has taught me more than anything is to like not care about my identity or even privacy. Like, um, I was talking to Ori the other day, and she brought up this point that doing porn makes you kind of realize how... <clears throat> privacy in this era is something you really have to work at. It's not something that's inherent. And um, also, you know, I, my asshole is spread on the internet and um, that's there forever. And I really have gone through a pretty intense personal process of just coming, like, I don't care. Like, it's sort of like whatever. <laughs> um, if whether that name is me or Danny Wilde, um, you can see my face making like really stupid faces all over the internet and it's been viewed millions of times and I don't know, you gotta be okay with it or you'd go insane, I guess. <laughs> yeah? How much time was there between when these things that you were sharing both happened and when you actually broke them down? This varies a lot. Um, so Zach brought up, brought up that I was, I used to run a blog and that's true. Um, and it had like a small cult following when I was performing and then I kind of like abandoned it in the year after I quit. Uh, and when I went to Rare Bird, the publisher, with the idea for this book, it was initially, it was initially me being lazy and being like, I have all these short stories, we should do a short story collection. But, um, you know, that was lazy. And so, <laughs> so I, I looked at a lot of them and realized, you know, these were very personal. Um, and often like emotional stories about being an adult and so I had to go back like years later like in the past two years and kind of fill in the blanks you know what I mean and to, to think of like what was important to me um, and what would tell the narrative that I wanted to tell so some of them were literally written like a week after it happened but there's not very many of them and I think most of those are kind of like listen to this funny thing that happened <laughs> and then uh, like that last story, 
I told or I read from I was written probably four or five years after the fact. Yeah, probably while I'm writing them, but I, I don't know. For me, a lot of times when I write stuff after it's done, I kind of detach from it in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, like I don't want to do this again. I really don't. Yeah. Um, what did you mean by you quit overnight? Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is, well, you can read it in here, but it's, I'll touch on it briefly because I've talked to a lot of people about it. Um, so I, as a male performer, like about 90% of guys in porn, gay, straight, whatever, at least uh, cis guys, not trans guys, anyone who has a penis takes erectile dysfunction drugs as like a performance enhancer. It's not that we can't do porn without them, it's just like a, a matter of consistency. Like, I think very few men um, understand what it's like to basically to come up with your arousal like immediately with someone who you've never met before and also with a bunch of people standing around you and, and oftentimes this happens like before you even get into the video part of it you have to do stills like some a photographer takes stills so you like meet someone shake hands or hug or whatever and then she gets on her knees and your dick is out but you need to be hard and basically not moving or not moving very much so very early on, like I found out about Viagra and Cialis and all this stuff, like taking this at 19, 20, 21 years old, and I got, I got used to taking that for um, nearly a decade. So I landed, I landed myself in the hospital a few times um, for priapism when your direction won't subside, and they, uh, it's really, it's a bummer, and they have to drain your dick with a, a shunt and. Um, <laughs> Send the book. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I uh, the third time that happened, I was just like never again. So I I quit. I just decided it wasn't worth it. So I, I retired from adult films in front of the camera at the end of 2013, so it's been a little while, and I've gone, <laughs> had a few like crash and burn career moments since then, <laughs> but I currently uh, am a freelance video editor and uh, like a variety of, like I, I've spent this week gripping on a film set essentially. So I do a lot of like production, post-production. Um, of course I write, but I think people should be honest these days. Like there are like, there are, like probably a few dozen people in the United States who make a living from writing books, I would say. And then there's everyone else who writes books. <laughs> so yeah, I edit and some of it's porn. You're a survivor. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Keep reinventing yourself. And yeah, yeah, I do script. do that. Yeah, thanks. Your dick survived. <laughs> <laughs> that was 
that's true. That is true. I did survive. Yeah. All right, you guys, one more hand for Chris. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.